Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is so good to see all of you again, especially that means that I didn't do too bad of a job last time since you wanted me again this Sunday morning. Please, in your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, we'll be looking at chapter 11, beginning in verse 12 all the way through verse 25. Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verse 12 through 25. Let me read God's holy word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful, cool Sunday morning. Thank you for another opportunity to open your word. Father, we come before your word because in your word is life. We come to your word because in your word is truth. We come before your word, Father, because in it, you make yourself known to us. You reveal your attributes, the things that you love and the things that you abhor and hate. You also, through your word, show us our sin and reveal to us our desperate need for a Savior. Father, I pray for the hearts of those here this morning who do not know you yet. Father, take their hearts of stone, break it. Give them eyes and ears to see and to hear the truth of your word. 
Father, I also ask that you would use me as an instrument in your hand to accurately exposit the truth of your word so that at the end of the day, your name and your name alone would receive all the glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. In 2010, during Super Bowl 44, Snickers introduced one of its most successful advertising campaigns. The slogan under this advertising campaign goes the following way. You are not you when you are hungry. And the premise of that campaign was simple. You would have a person begin to act out of character when they were hungry. And it was not until one of their friends would bring him a Snickers bar that they would eat the Snickers bar and all of a sudden they would turn back to themselves. And you know what? Unfortunately, too often we can read the account in the Gospel of Mark in a similar way. If taken out of its appropriate context, we may think that Jesus simply needed a Snickers bar here. After all, the passage says he was hungry and he starts acting in a way perhaps that we haven't seen him do in the Gospel of Mark just yet. He starts cursing trees, flipping over the temple uh, tables, chasing people out of the temple. And you might think, what's going on? Is Jesus simply hangry and he just needs to maybe have a snicker bar to fix all of this? Yeah, that is not the case. The passage before us is intentionally structured in such a way for us to see the valuable lesson. In fact, the commentators would call this an enacted parable. The things that take place in the passage before us are intentional and were designed to teach the disciples, the people in the temple, and also all of us this morning a valuable lesson. Now, Mark does not give us a Snickers here. However, he does give us a sandwich. And you might say, what do you mean by that? Here, what we have in our text is something that the scholars refer to as the Markian or the Markian sandwich, where Mark begins one story, pauses, inserts a new story, and then goes back and finishes the previous story that he started with. That's what we call a Markian sandwich. Here, Mark starts with a count of the fig tree. Then he pauses and inserts the temple account. And then he goes back and finishes the account with the fig tree. That is not accidental. For Mark, these accounts overlap and intertwine one another. In fact, you could say that there's easily three sermons here. You can just preach on bearing fruit and the fig tree. There will be enough for multiple sermons just in that section alone. You can also preach just on the cleansing of the temple. There's a lot there in the cleansing of the temple. And you can also preach on the trusting God and having faith in Him and praying and knowing that we will receive that which will last. There's plenty there. However, in Mark's eyes and in his gospel account, the three work together. In order to understand the lesson and the teaching which Jesus brought for his disciples and for all of us this morning, we need to look at all three of these accounts, all three of these Markian sandwich, if you will, all in one 
time. Therefore, those of you who love to take notes, I have a very simple outline, just three words for you. First, we will look at the tree mentioned in verses 12 through 14. Secondly, we'll look at the temple account mentioned in verses 15 through 19. And finally, Lord willing, we'll conclude by looking at the trust, the trust commanded in verses 20 through 25. So let's begin with point number one, the tree in verse 12. Our text picks up following what many of us are familiar with, the triumphant entry of the Lord Jesus Christ beginning in chapter 11. And then in our text beginning in verse 12, we're told that the following day, Jesus once again from the city of Bethany walked back on his way to the Temple Mount. Now, Bethany was little less than two miles away from Jerusalem, and therefore it made it a wonderful location to kind of uh, spend the night, uh, meet with friends, as we know a lot of Jesus' friends and disciples had houses in Bethany. And therefore we're told that Jesus, the following day, he was hungry and he was walking with his disciples to Bethany. Now, what makes this a significant account is that Jesus notices a tree, specifically a fig tree, in the distance. Now, this might not seem like a big deal to us, but on the way from Bethany to the Temple Mount, we know there was the olive mount, and therefore there was lots of olive trees present there, and so a fig tree would definitely stand out. However, what made this specific tree stand out even more is that according to Mark, it already had the leaves on it, and yet it was not the season for figs. Now, don't take my word for it. I am no gardener. However, I have some experience. We have one fig tree in our backyard. From that little experience with this one fig tree, I've learned that when the leaves start coming, that's when the fruit is going to come soon, either right away or a little bit, few days after the leaves are in full uh, bloom, if you will. And therefore, Jesus noticed this tree. He noticed that this tree had the leaves. Those of you who have ever seen a fig tree, they have very big leaves. They're bigger than my palm. And often you have to move the leaves out of the way to see if the fruit is even present there. And so as Jesus comes to this fig tree that has the appearance of fruit, he notices that the fruit are not there. This tree stood out because it had the look of fruitfulness, but no substance of fruit was present there. R.C. Sproul helps us out by telling us that the test of whether one could expect figs from the fig tree was not the time of the year, but whether the foliage of the tree was in full bloom. And so as Jesus approached this tree, the foliage of the leaves was there. But when he moved the leaves aside, no fruit was present. And so the next thing we see here is that Jesus reacts in a very unique way and in verse 13, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Why is Jesus being so strict with this fig tree? 
Why this response? Is it simply because Jesus was just hungry and he was upset, thinking that there would be figs found on this tree? Or is there something more to it? And the reason we know that this was not simply an emotional or hungry response is because of what we read at the end of verse 14. And his disciples heard it. That which Jesus did here was intentional, a divinely appointed lesson for his disciples to hear. Jesus did not simply murmur something to himself. He did not just simply thought about it to himself, but he said this out loud to the fig tree so that his disciples would hear that which Jesus does here. Edmund Hebert in his commentary says, Here the tree is judged, not for its lack of fruit, but for its deceptive show of exceptional producing power. Jesus specifically pronounces a curse upon this fig tree because it has a certain appearance, but yet the fruit is lacking. The tree looks like it should have fruit, but it's not there. And Jesus does this out loud so that his own disciples can hear. This was an intentional lesson. Jesus specifically mentioned this right in front of his own disciples. So this brings the second question to us. Why a fig tree? Out of all the trees, they're on Mount of Olives. Why not pick out an olive tree? Why did Jesus single out a fig tree? I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but those of you who study your Old Testament, you would realize that fig tree was often used as a representation of the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 8.13 tells us, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Micah 7, 1 through 2 tells us, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among the mankind. And therefore, Jesus specifically, on his way to the Temple Mount, singles out a fig tree because the fig tree was a a lived out uh, representation of the nation of Israel. This lesson which Jesus is about to teach his disciple pointed to his own people. It described three years' worth of observation that Jesus Christ saw from the people of Israel while he was here on this earth. Edmund Heber goes on to say, The fig tree with its precocious leaves, making a bold profession of fruitfulness, was an apt symbol of the Jewish nation with its proud boast of being God's favored people. The tree was a fitting symbol of Israel's failure to produce the spiritual fruit that it professed to have. Jesus used the tree to convey to his disciples a lesson of his condemnation of hypocrisy. Jesus is singling out that which they are about to see on their way to the Temple Mount. During his three years of ministry among the people of Israel... Jesus Christ clearly saw hypocrisy. He saw plenty of foliage, but no fruit present. 
he saw appearance of people who looked like they were good. They had whitewashed tombs appearance, yet inside of them there was no fruit. There was nothing inside of them. They were hypocrites. In fact, if you remember from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist would preach the same message to the people of Israel. Matthew 3, 8 through 10, John the Baptist would preach, Bear the fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus singled out this fig tree as an enacted parable to teach his disciples the importance of not only looking good, but also bearing the appropriate fruit. Now, we're very quick in our study of the Gospels to judge the people of Israel. In fact, some of us are nodding our heads and saying, yeah, whoa, horrible people of Israel. How dare you look like you have fruits? And yet we forget that the same command to bear fruit was not just for the people of Israel, but it's the same command that applies to us today as well. John 15, 1 through 2, Jesus would say, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I'm going to quote a few more from John 15 because Jesus speaks about that quite a bit there. John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified. Let me just pause there. Have you ever wondered how God is glorified? Have you ever wondered what you can do in order to bring glory to God? This is what Jesus says is the prerequisite in order to bring glory to his Father. John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Do you know why Jesus chose us? Do you know the reason for his calling of the saints? I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Brothers and sisters, let's stop there. Jesus singled out that fig tree to highlight the lack of fruitfulness in the nation of Israel. But if our life was represented by a fig tree, how would it look like? Would there be a tree full of foliage, having the appearance of fruitfulness? Will we put on a facade? We would look in a certain way because we know it's Sunday and we're coming to church. But how does our life look throughout the week? Or is there actually fruit that is hidden behind those leaves? Is there a fruit 
that is growing and increasing? Are we open to the Spirit's work of pruning and cutting so that more fruit is bearing, more fruit is coming unto the glory of God? Would Jesus, in the same way, react to our life as he reacted to this fig tree here? That was the first lesson to his disciples, is that we are called as his people to bear much fruit. And this fig tree did not. This brings us to the second point in your notes, the temple, beginning in verses 15 through 19. Now we're told by Mark that following the cursing of this tree, they continued going to the temple mount, and eventually they made their way into the temple. Now, you must know that there was three temples throughout the history of the nation of Israel, and this is now the third temple built and constructed by Herod, known as the Herodian Temple. And out of all three of the temple, this was perhaps the most majestic and the most wonderful structure that the people have ever seen. R.C. Sproul says the Herodian Temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a huge complex, and it was divided into four parts. First, there was the court of the Gentiles. That was the only area where the Gentiles were allowed to come and worship. Then there was the court of the women. There was the only location where the women were permitted to come and worship. Then there was the court of the Jews. You had to be a Jew in order to come there and worship. And then finally, there was the Holy of Holies where only priests were allowed to come and bring offering to God. Ancient historian Josephus tells us that the temple had a portico supported by columns that were 35 feet tall and were so wide that it required three grown men to hold their hands like this to go around the circumference of these large columns. The entire temple uh, covered an area of approximately 30 acres. 30 acres of land was covered by this Herodian temple. And under this portico, there were these large and tall columns that were 35 feet tall. Jesus noticed something that we saw in our text today. We see that according to Jesus, there were those people who were selling and buying There were those who were exchanging money. There were those crossing through the temple. Now, let me give you some background because you might say, why are all those things taking place there? What is happening? Uh, Why are those things present? That might help us understand why Jesus responded in a way that he did in the text here before us. First, we see that there was selling and buying. You see, those people who are coming to bring offerings and sacrifices in the temple often would come from a very far journey. In fact, we are told this was now the time of the Passover. And so you had people coming even from other nations on their way in order to bring offering and sacrifices in the temple. However, if you were uh, bold enough and brave enough, you would bring your own animal. And the reason why I say you had to be brave to do that, because we are told that there was inspectors at the entrance to the temple who would look at your animal and say, hmm, a little too skinny, or little too fat, maybe too many blemishes, or not enough blemishes. 
But don't worry, friend, for a good price of this much, I give you ours, temple-approved animal, which will be perfect for you. And so they would take the animal that did not pass the test, and they would give them that temple-approved animal, and then take the one that they didn't pass, and then they would offer it to the next person as the approved animal, and so on. And therefore, there was selling and uh, buying of animals for sacrifices. Josephus also tells us that at 66 AD, there was 260,000 lambs sacrificed during the Passover. Can you imagine? 260,000 lambs. Now, lambs were not the only things. For those who couldn't afford lambs, there were pigeons and other birds. There was also oxen and other things being offered in sacrifices to the Lord. So can you imagine the sound? Can you imagine the smell in this court of the Gentiles where this transaction is taking place? I mean, it would take us less than five minutes to notice one sheep in the sanctuary. And even if it was the most well-behaved sheep, it would take us maybe three minutes to smell that one little sheep in here. But according to Josephus, 260,000 lambs would be sacrificed during the time of the Passover. When you say, well, you know what, at least it was outside. Uh, I've been in farms that are outdoors. It rarely helps with the noise or with the smell. And then you might say, well, why the money changers? Well, when they would bring their sacrifices and then they had to pay money to exchange it or maybe purchase the temple approved one, they could not use the heathen coins, if you will. Jewish and Roman coins would not work in the temple of Israel. And therefore, they would say, don't worry, friend, for a good price and low interest, I'll take your heathen coin and I'll exchange it for our temple-approved currency. On top of that, we are told that every male had to pay a yearly temple tax. And therefore, once again, apart from the uh, sacrifices and the offerings, the males had to bring in the yearly temple tax. And if you didn't have the appropriate currency, they would charge you extra to exchange for the temple-approved coin. Now, something also very unique and only here in the Gospel of Mark is mentioned that Jesus did. We read in verse, 11, uh, verse 16 of our passage, And he, namely Jesus, would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, this might seem confusing and uh, strange to us, but most commentators agree what this means is that since the temple was so large, and it covered 30 acres of land, what started happening is that people, instead of walking all the way around the temple, made little pathways through the temple, through the court of the Gentiles, so that they would make a shortcut to walk from one end of Jerusalem to the other, cutting their way through the temple. So what you have here is not just the sound and the smell of thousands and thousands of animals, not just the sound and the smell of merchants exchanging money, but you also have a random citizen walking through his groceries across the temple yard, the, temple, the courtyard of the Gentiles, where people are supposed to be worshiping the Lord. 
Kent Hughes goes on to say in his commentary, The noise in this court of the Gentiles was terrific. Merchants shouted from their stalls to their customers, and noisy haggling, pushy pilgrims jostled one another for position. The incredible din was heightened by the constant bawling of the livestock, the aroma of the livestock, the, uh, the accentuated by the enclosure made it like a country fair, and the stock exchange all rolled into one. And it is to this that our Lord Jesus Christ responds in a way that he does. Jesus Christ began driving out all the merchants, turning over the tables of the money changers and those who sold pinches. Jesus here, to say the least, was furious. What we are witnessing here is Jesus was provoked to righteous indignation. William Lane says, this is the only act of violence recorded of our Lord, and it is understandable as a public demonstration of zeal for God's honor. But brothers and sisters, once again, this is not just Jesus having a bad day. This is not Jesus simply hangry and not having his snicker bar, and therefore he's acting in a manner which is not appropriate to his character. No, this is righteous indignation for his father's house. And the reason we know that this was not incidental is because, look, do you remember what happened with the fig tree? Jesus said things out loud so that his disciples could hear Look what happens here in the temple. After Jesus reacts in the way that he reacts, he begins to do what? We are told Jesus begins to teach the crowd. Jesus is not simply flipping things over and then just leaving, wandering, uh, leaving them wondering why did he do that or what was the reason for his action. But he does certain things and then right away begins to teach explain the reason for why he did what he did. Verse 17 tells us, is it not written? I love how Jesus goes back to the word of God. Jesus is not acting on his emotions. He's not acting on the fact that he was hungry. He's acting on the foundation of God's word. He says, is it not Written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. There's two specific Old Testament references here that Jesus Christ is quoting in his teaching during the cleansing of the temple. First one is found in Isaiah 56, 7. Let me read it for you. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the peoples. And the Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those 
already gathered. There are a few things that I want to point out from this text which Jesus quoted during his time in the temple. First, he highlights the purpose of the temple. Did you guys catch the purpose of the temple? The purpose of the temple was to be a house of prayer. The temple was to be a place where people can come and make intercession to their God. Instead, it became a bazaar. It became a market where coins and animals are being exchanged. Instead of being a place where people can come and worship and pray to their heavenly father, it became a marketplace where money is being exchanged. Animals are continually changing hands and people randomly crossing as a shortcut because they're too lazy to walk all the way around. Not only did Jesus pick Isaiah 56 to highlight the purpose, but he also wanted to highlight the people who were supposed to be in the temple. I don't know if you noticed this. Let me just highlight the foreigners, the outcasts of Israel, a house of prayer for all people. I gather yet others to him who are not yet there. Not only was this supposed to be a house of prayer for the people of Israel, but God's design for his temple is that other people, all people of all nations, and even those who are considered outcasts of Israel were to be welcomed. Did you notice something in my explanation of what was taken in the temple? What was taking place in the temple? Do you remember where it was done? Do you think they did it in the court of the women? No. Do you think they exchanged animals and other things in the court of the Jews? No. They specifically set up their market in the court of the Gentiles. To them, it was okay if it's done in the court of the Gentiles. As long as you don't touch our side of the temple, as long as you don't, don't touch the side of the temple where we are, we're okay. Put that all where the Gentiles are. Put it all where the outcasts are, where the foreigners are. And Jesus specifically quotes Isaiah 56 to say, No, my house of prayer should be for all people, for all nations. In fact, if you're wondering what Jesus did according to Matthew's account of the uh, cleansing of the temple, after he starts teaching, we are told in Matthew 21, 14, And the blind and the lame came into him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of God, they were indignant. So Jesus quite literally took the things in the temple that didn't belong, and according to Matthew's account, he started bringing in the people who should be in the temple, those who belonged in the temple, the blind, the lame. And did you notice even the children? It doesn't take much of a study of the gospel accounts to understand even how Jesus' own disciples reacted to children. They were considered a nuisance. They were considered those who make you late on the way to church. Just joking. And that's how they reacted to those things. But here Jesus, instead of casting them out of the temple, he's bringing them into the temple. He's bringing the blind and the lame. 
the outcasts of Israel. He's bringing the children. Jesus would take the children and place them on his lap because he wanted to show the importance. He wanted to highlight how his kingdom is going to be. And instead, according to Jesus, he says, they have made it a den of robbers. Have you ever considered this term? We use it a lot, a den of robbers. A den of robbers quite literally means a place where thieves hide their loot. A den of robbers is a safety place where robbers, after they steal, they take that and then they hide it so that they know where it's located. So instead of it being a house of prayer, the scribes and the Pharisees made the temple a safe place for them to hide all the financial gain that they were making off of these sacrifices and off of the people. Instead of it being a house of prayer, it became a safe place for robbers to hide their loot, to hide that which they brought from it. And of course, as you will see there in your text, the chief priests and the scribes heard it. You notice that again? Jesus' lessons were designed to be heard. First, he does that to a fig tree. And then the disciples heard it. Here, he does this in the temple. And the scribes and the Pharisees heard what Jesus did. And they were seeking to destroy him. Now, before we move on to the third point, are you guys starting to see the parallel between the fig tree with its appearance, but no fruit, and the temple with its appearance, and yet no fruit. The fig tree had the foliage, had the leaves saying, look at me, I'm mighty, I'm going to be good, and yet upon closer inspection, when the leaves were moved out of the way, zero fruit. In the same way, the Herodian temple had the appearance, 30 acres of land. Look at me, the court of the Gentiles, court of the women, court for the Jews, the holy of holies. And yet, when Jesus came, and upon closer inspection, it was not a house of prayer. It was a den of robbers. There was no righteousness. There was no worship. There was no intercession. It became a place that had the appearance, and yet no substance this brings us to the third and final point in your notes the trust the trust commanded in verses 20 through 25 now we come to the end of the Marquean sandwich where mark is trying to tie together the lesson that's being taught here by the lord jesus christ and we read in verse 20 and 21 and they passed by in the morning and they saw the fig tree was withered away to its roots. Now, once again, I'm not a gardener, but it's fascinating to me. Usually when a tree begins to wither, it maybe you'll see a branch or a couple of the leaves start looking differently than the rest. Here, the fig tree was withered to its root. It probably could not even stand upright anymore. It probably was already on its side. This shows, once again, the power in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the, uh, the tree was withered away to its root. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Once again, the judgment of the fig tree was a symbol for the judgment that was about to come on the temple of Israel. Jesus, once again, as they're the next day with the temple mount in their background, as they're standing next to this withered 
fig tree, which Jesus cursed for its lack of fruitfulness. Jesus is teaching his disciple a vital lesson about the temple, the temple that is going to be cursed and judged in the same way as this tree is. William Lane in his commentary says, Just as the leaves of the tree concealed the fact that there was no fruit to enjoy, so the magnificence of the temple and its ceremony conceals the fact that Israel has not brought forth the fruit of righteousness demanded by God. For something is greater than the temple was standing in front of them. Jesus was standing in front of them. There was no longer a necessity for the temple because Jesus is there himself. In fact, I was convicted in studying this passage that it's probably wrong for us to call this the cleansing of the temple. Because to cleanse something is to remove that which doesn't belong and then to kind of bring it back together and start it going again. Jesus is not trying to reinstate temple worship here. Rather, I think this is a judgment upon the temple. For the temple is no longer going to be necessary, for the new temple is standing right in front of them, namely Jesus Christ. Just as he promised his disciples when he was walking by the temple in the Gospel of John, I will destroy this, and on the third day I will rebuild it. And everyone was saying, do you know how long it took us to build this one? But Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his own body, which will be resurrected on the third day. Something and someone greater than the temple was standing in front of them. James Edwards says, what Jesus does in the temple goes beyond a purging or a corrective act, however. It attacks the very commerce upon which the temple called dependent. Laying an axe at the root of the temple as an institution. Mark portrays the clearing of the temple not as its restoration, but as its dissolution. Like the fig tree, its function is withered to its root. And then I want you to see the unique application that Jesus starts to teach once again. Notice, each time Jesus is teaching, when he first saw the fig tree... The curse was a teaching designed to, for his disciples to be heard. In the cleansing of the temple, he teaches as he cleanses the temple so that the Pharisees and the scribes hear it. And then now, in noticing the withered fig tree, Jesus once again has a lesson and an application for his disciples and also for us today. And the lesson is an unusual one, if you ask me. And Jesus answered them in verse 22. Have faith in God. And you might say, that's a little strange. How do we get from bearing fruit to a poor and an appropriate use of the temple to now Jesus' application of all this being have faith in God? The Greek word for faith there is pistis, which means trust or confidence. So what Jesus is literally saying as the temple mount is behind him is trust in God. Not in the temple, but in the God. As he's standing before them, he's quite literally pointing to himself and saying, 
Don't trust in, in that which takes place in that facade of the temple, but trust in the real substance that is standing before you. You see, people of Israel gained this unhealthy fascination with the temple to the point where the temple was the most sacred and holy thing in their life. Jeremiah 7, 4, as you might remember, the same passage that Jesus also quoted while he was there, they would say, do not trust in these deceptive words. What deceptive words were they trusting in? This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in these deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations again. You see, what the nation of Israel started doing is they would live however they want, sin however much they want, but as long as the temple was there, they thought that God was on their side, and so they would go inside of the temple and say, this is the temple of the Lord, thinking that they're forgiven, and then they would walk out of the temple and do all of those abominations again. First sisters, how many of us, even in our modern day, do the same? We live how we want, we do what we want, we say what we want, and then we think just because I walked in into the temple of the Lord, I am forgiven, and then I can walk out and do that again, and then the cycle repeats time and time again. Nation of Israel was trusting in the temple. Jesus is saying, put your trust in God. You know what's fascinating? Do you remember what Adam and Eve did after they sinned? Do you remember how they tried to cover their sin? With what? With fig tree leaves. I don't think it's accidental that Jesus brings this up again. Time and time again, humankind's have tried to fix the problem of sin with their own accord. With fig trees, fig tree leaves, thinking that that would be sufficient to cover their sinfulness. It's said that the prosperity gospel have taken these verses at the conclusion of our passage to think that you can just name it and claim it and you will receive it. But what Jesus is teaching here in faith that moves the mountains, because the representation and the image of moving the mountains, mountain was the most impossible thing. And therefore to have faith to do the most impossible thing required a great faith. And the most impossible thing in our life, brothers and sisters, is our sin. And the only one who can move our sin, cover our sin, is not our fig leaves, but God. And therefore, he says, trust in God. Not in the temple, not in their facade of fruitfulness and righteousness that they're trying to portray, but trust in the only one who's able to cover your sin. So do you remember what God did for Adam and Eve? He made them take off those false, fake fig leaf leaves, and instead he had to kill the first animal. First blood that was ever shed was shed by God in order to cover the sinfulness of mankind. And then God would take the skins of that animal and would give them clothing to cover their nakedness. 
This is the image of what Christ does for us. His blood was shed on our behalf so that we would stop covering ourselves with the facade of the temple or the facade of our man-made fig tree leaves, but that so we can cover ourselves with the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, what is the lesson of the passage before us today? Bear fruit and trust God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons that Jesus Christ have taught his disciples, have taught the scribes and Pharisees, but most importantly, have taught us this morning as well. Father, I pray for the hearts of those that are still relying on their man-made fig tree leaves to cover their sinfulness. Those that think that just because they're sitting in this pew that they can go out of here today and live how they want and that as soon as they come back here next week, their sins will be covered. The pew does not cover sin. A church service does not cover sin. Fig tree leaves do not cover sin. It is only the blood of your son. Thank you that we will stand before you, not with our own righteousness, but a foreign righteousness, a righteousness of our guarantor, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf. May we trust God and bear much fruit. We ask this in your name. Amen.